it's time to end the forever war. With these words, Joe Biden has announced yesterday that the United States will withdraw all of its military forces from Afghanistan by the time of the 20th anniversary of the September 11, 2001 attacks against the World Trade Center and the Pentagon. We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. Welcome to The Real Story on The Socialist Program. I'm your host, Brian Becker. If you enjoy the show, please support this independent programming by going to patreon.com forward slash The Socialist Program and subscribing. We can do this show with you, but not without you. Today is the second episode where we are having an in-depth discussion about the U.S. war in Afghanistan, including its hidden history. We're joined by Sorab Eslami, who is a doctoral student at Syracuse University in the Department of Geography and the Environment. Sorab, welcome back. Thank you. Happy to be back. Thank you. Um, Sorab, we had planned last week to have a second part of our discussion with you about Afghanistan. The first part, I think, was very important for many people, at least in the United States, who didn't know the hidden history that the U.S. really began intervening in Afghanistan, not in 2001, not with the 2001, October 7th, 2001 invasion, but earlier in 1978 with what was then up until then the largest CIA covert operation ever against what was a socialist government in Afghanistan. A lot of people didn't know that history. And then we said, let's talk about the war going forward in a second episode. And in the meantime, since our first recording, our great friend and brother, Ramsey Clark, former U.S. Attorney General of the United States and someone we've all collaborated with, he was a key person helping to found the Answer Coalition in 2001, right after the September 11th attacks. Uh, Ramsey sadly passed away, and we had said, okay, we'll wait one week, we'll have the Afghanistan show follow-up next week, not this week. But then yesterday, Joe Biden made an amazing announcement. He said, it's time to end the forever war. The U.S. was leaving Afghanistan. It was not condition-based. And we thought, well, we can't do anything but talk about Afghanistan today, given the momentous announcement by the U.S. government. Let's hear an audio clip. This is Joe Biden speaking yesterday about this big decision. Again, it's been a long time coming. Trump said before he would end the war in Afghanistan. Now, Joe Biden says it really is ending. Let's listen, and then I want to get your thoughts. Our allies and partners have stood beside us shoulder to shoulder in Afghanistan for almost 20 years. And we're deeply grateful for the contributions they have made to our shared mission and for the sacrifices they've borne. The plan has long been in together, out together. 
U.S. troops as well as forces deployed by our NATO allies and operational partners will be out of Afghanistan before we mark the 20th anniversary of that heinous attack on September 11th. But, but will not take our eye off the terrorist threat. We'll reorganize our counterterrorism capabilities and the substantial assets in the region to prevent reemergence of terrorists and the threat to our homeland from over the horizon. We'll hold the Taliban accountable for its commitment not to allow any terrorist to threaten the United States or its allies from Afghan soil. The Afghan government has made that commitment to us as well. And we'll focus our full attention on the threat we face today. In my direction, my team is refining our national strategy to monitor and disrupt significant terrorist threats, not only in Afghanistan, but anywhere they may arise. And they're in Africa, Europe, the Middle East, and elsewhere. All right. So, Rob, this wasn't a complete surprise because we know, and we talked about on this show, that Anthony Blinken was basically, a Secretary of State was basically threatening the existing U.S.-backed government in Afghanistan, that it needed to go along with negotiations with the Taliban to form a government of national unity. And Blinken basically said, we're not waiting for you to agree this is going to happen with or without you. Anyway, is the U.S. leaving Afghanistan? Yeah, well, that's the big question. And I think that, you know, right now, while, you know, Biden's announcement may come as some sort of a relief to some, for many, even if it does come as some relief, this announcement that is, questions still abound. To me, in my judgment, one of the main questions that I have is why wait until 9-11 to withdraw the troops? And the reason I say that is because aside from the fact that you know, Biden's announcement to withdraw by that date marks the 20 years in Afghanistan, also marks the events of 9-11, but really, aside from marking that date, it's sort of an arbitrary timeline to move from what was previously May 1st, the deadline to withdraw according to the agreement between the United States and the Taliban signed in February of last year. And so I think there are a number of ways of approaching this question of why, why this time, why the delay. And I think that in order to get towards answering that, there are a few details that are worth mentioning that have not been mentioned in a lot of the press coverage of Biden's very recent announcement. One of those details left unmentioned is the sort of number of private mercenaries, private military contractors who will either remain in Afghanistan or maybe be reduced in number. But questions around that still remain to be answered. I think the other thing that is worth stating is that while one can say that the sort of delay in withdrawal put some pressure, as said in the clip you shared, on Afghan partners, the national government in Afghanistan, to come to some sort of terms or agreement with the Taliban. It's worth pointing out that the Taliban, as we see them operating today, aren't really the same Taliban that existed 20 years ago. The Taliban, as an organization, multifaceted and represented by many different individuals, has changed quite a bit. And one of the ways you can see that change is in how they've talked pretty pragmatically about the state of affairs in Afghanistan today when interviewed at these various forums in Moscow or in Qatar. One of the things that stands out is in an interview, I believe with the BBC, a Taliban spokesperson said that, you know, 
while we realize that we can't necessarily control social access to smartphones, to the internet in Afghanistan, and therefore we have to think you know, a little bit more realistically about how we enforce some sort of social control in the country. And, you know, while that's not saying that the Taliban isn't still a right-wing fundamentalist organization that very much stands in the way of women's liberation in the country, true emancipation for women in the country, that is, it does indicate that the Taliban is thinking a lot more strategically about some sort of transition in the country than even, again, our partners, as Biden says, in the national government of Afghanistan. So I think focusing on some of the things that are left unsaid in this announcement help to answer some of these questions about whether the U.S. government will truly withdraw, including private military contractors or not. Well, let's explore that a little bit. I was reading uh, Covert Action magazine. There was an article by Jeremy Kuzmarov, who I know is a good guy, an analyst. He's been on my previous show, The Loud and Clear. He's making the argument that what's actually happening is that the U.S. is moving from endless war to endless operations and points out that as of January, and this also comes from you know Pentagon sources, as of January of this year, there were 18,000 private contractors in the employee of the Pentagon or NATO or both compared to 2,500 U.S. soldiers. So, you know, that's a ratio of eight to one. And if the U.S. pulls out 2,500 soldiers, but the contractors remain, that means the U.S. is still in Afghanistan, uh, just has privatized part of the war. Now, I want to think this through a little bit because, yes, there are 18,000 private contractors, but about 6,700 of them are Americans. The others may be Afghans. They may be other nationalities. They're doing all kinds of jobs inside of Afghanistan as employees, basically, of the Pentagon. If the United States military leaves, and if there is either a government of national unity where the Taliban and the existing Afghan government come to some agreement, I believe the Taliban will be the dominant part of a government of national unity. Or if the Taliban, because they have the military momentum, just say, well, to hell with that, even if they initially say yes to a government of national unity, they could pretty much destroy it and they control more territory in Afghanistan now than they did at the time of the October 7th, 2001 US NATO invasion of the country. I'm just wondering whether those contractors will actually want to stay in Afghanistan. It would seem to me to be a very precarious type of existence. And again, it's not stated, but there was an agreement a year ago, the Trump administration and the Taliban, I believe it was in the talks in Doha, whereby it was agreed that the U.S. military and the private contractors were going to leave. That's right, correct? That's right. I think that there is still a lot of, as you said, there are still many questions that remain to be answered. But I think that one thing we can be certain about is, regardless of whether there is a complete withdrawal of U.S. troops with some private military contractors staying, or you know maybe even a withdrawal of complete withdrawal of private military contractors as well. I think one thing we can be certain of is that the U.S. government will try its best not to undermine the image of U.S. imperialism or U.S. global hegemony within this process of you know, figuring out how to move forward with Afghanistan in a way that doesn't just continue, at least outwardly, 
this forever war, this forever military occupation. But again, that being said, I don't think that we will see a true end to American influence in the country. I think that one other thing that it's important to state is that as much as the Taliban has sort of successfully outmaneuvered the United States, outmaneuvered even the national government in Afghanistan, the Taliban, I think, realizes that access to foreign aid, that access to, in particular, foreign capital will be integral to a transition in the country. And what I mean by that is that right now, by all measures, Afghanistan represents what may be referred to as a rentier state. In other words, a state that depends in large part on foreign aid and foreign assistance. I don't know the exact statistic, but a great deal of Afghanistan's GDP is made up of foreign aid. And I think that because there is this tremendous support system internationally for the state in Afghanistan to continue, the Taliban realizes that they cannot necessarily cut themselves off from that entirely. Also within this, we have to bear in mind that Afghanistan has vast rare earth mineral resources. And I believe in particular, one of the highest reserves of lithium in the world. And I think that whatever government, national unity government, and I agree with you, I do believe that if there is a national unity government in Afghanistan, that the Taliban will certainly have the upper hand in that scenario. I believe that they know very well that making sure that they continue to have international interests in the country, even if it be towards investment in these mineral extraction, the U.S. will continue to play an important role in that way. And so I think that, again, even if we see a withdrawal of U.S. troops and even private military contractors, that doesn't necessarily mean the end of U.S. imperialism and imperialist involvement in Afghanistan. Let's talk about the geostrategic impact of Afghanistan. And to talk about it, you have to partly talk about geography here. On the west is Iran. On the northwest is Turkmenistan. Directly to the north is Uzbekistan. To the northeast is Tajikistan. Even a little further northeast, but in a very small part of the Afghan border, is China, the People's Republic of China. And then to the southeast, and all the way up to the northeast is Pakistan. So very big borders with Pakistan, very big borders with Iran, and Afghanistan is a landlocked country. The Taliban have historically been aligned with, I'm putting it mildly, with Pakistan. Let's just talk about how some of the other regional players will you know, view this announcement. How will Iran in particular view it, China and India? Well, I think that for neighboring countries, in particular Iran, an actual withdrawal of U.S. troops, I think, would be seen as a favorable development. And I think there are good reasons for that. But that being said, and this sort of also answers your previous question, you know, even if there is a withdrawal of U.S. troops in Afghanistan, we have to also bear in mind that there are U.S. bases, military bases throughout the region, throughout the greater region around Afghanistan, from which U.S. troops can be deployed again. So I think that we can't underestimate the ability of the U.S. military to deploy at a moment's notice. I think that, again, if there is a withdrawal, 
in particular from Iran's perspective, from Afghanistan, that does mean a slight easing of pressure on the country. But again, that there are still U.S. military bases right at that country's doorstep. In terms of Pakistan and India, you know, I think that it allows for a certain degree of greater influence for neighboring countries like Pakistan and India and Afghanistan. India recently, over the last decade, has been trying to increase engagement in that country, funding a number of infrastructural projects and dams in particular. Last time we spoke, we talked about the recent history of Afghanistan and U.S. interests in the country in particular. And I think it's also worth pointing out that neighboring countries around Afghanistan also have particular interests in the country. And I think that this moment of transition in Afghanistan does allow for them to take advantage of that. At this point, there's nothing really we can be certain about in terms of regional interests in the country. However, we do know that, for instance, Pakistan, particularly during the time of the struggle between the Mujahideen and Soviet forces and the then socialist government in Afghanistan, Pakistan did have a direct role in supporting the Mujahideen. And to this day, you know, still have interests in certain factions and armed factions in Afghanistan. I think that another thing that is worth pointing out too is that as much as these neighboring countries have interests in Afghanistan, the force with which they can express those interests won't necessarily be equal to that of the United States. And I think that in particular, if we look at Russian or say even Chinese interests in Afghanistan, we also have to remember that the United States is in the midst of this revamped new sort of Cold War with China, the United States will try its utmost not to allow any advantage for, say, China in this new transitioning Afghanistan. Well, let's just stay with that for a quick second before we go on to some other parts to this story. I want to talk about Russia in particular. Now, I mentioned in the northern parts of the border of Afghanistan, there's Turkmenistan, Uzbekistan, Tajikistan. These were the former republics of the USSR, the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics, the Soviet Union. Russia was the anchor country of this 15-republic multinational entity called the Soviet Union. Even in 1978, in December, when the Soviet troops entered Afghanistan to support the beleaguered socialist government that was under assault by feudal forces, the Mujahideen, again, organized, coordinated, financed, and armed by the CIA and others. A lot of the Soviet troops were not Russians. A lot of them were Turks from Turkmenistan, Uzbekistan, Tajikistan, Kyrgyzstan, Kazakhstan. In other words, from the South or Central Asian, mainly Muslim countries in the former Soviet Union. They are now independent republics. They're no longer with Russia. But there have been negotiations with the Taliban that have been hosted in Russia. Let's just talk about Russia's attitude and about what might be a future Afghan government's relationship to Russia. As we talked about in our first episode, Sarab, the Dawood Khan government that was overthrown by the socialists in 1978, and even the king who was overthrown and toppled in a coup in 1973, the last king of Afghanistan, all three of those governments had basically friendly or certainly good relations with the former Soviet Union. So let's just talk about Russia now. Right. And I think that to that point, I believe in 2014 or sometime in the last decade, Russia actually opened up a new office in Kabul, I think in what was a former Soviet-Afghan friendship office, something of that sort. So I think that 
Russia has the advantage now of being able to speak to that that history of real support and solidarity between what was then the former Soviet Union and Afghanistan. You mentioned even during the time of the king, the last monarch of Afghanistan, King Zahir Shah, the Soviet Union had invested a considerable amount in infrastructural projects that would only increase through the different governments. And of course, ultimately, in the socialist government would reach a certain height that wasn't there before. I think that right now, you know, especially for these former Soviet republics in Central Asia, the now independent republics that you mentioned, Tajikistan, Uzbekistan, Turkmenistan, a secure Afghanistan means a great deal to them. And because a secure Afghanistan means a great deal to these countries, it also means a great deal to Russia. I think that it's also worth stating that one of the main sort of distribution lines of the opioid production in Afghanistan is through Central Asia into Russia. And I think that being able to control that, in addition to maintaining a level of security that doesn't spill over into these independent republics of Tajikistan, Turkmenistan, and Uzbekistan, is of a real sort of strategic value, again, to these Central Asian states, but also to Russia. And so I think that there is an interest in how things play out in Afghanistan. But I think, again, qualitatively, they are different to those interests that the United States have in the country. And again, I think that we have to make sure that we don't necessarily see Russian interests in Afghanistan as equal to U.S. interests. There is a real difference there. Let's talk about what's coming for people in Afghanistan. Frequently, people in the U.S. left focus almost exclusively on geostrategic implications Of course, living in the United States as progressives, as anti-war people, as anti-imperialists, our focus is on what is the U.S. government doing? What is the U.S. empire doing? What are its machinations? How does it sort of cynically manipulate regional issues or domestic issues for its own end? And then whatever its nefarious real interests are, they're always masqueraded or camouflaged by noble-sounding missions like, you know, helping girls in Afghanistan or protecting modernity in Afghanistan and stopping the Taliban from taking the country back to the seventh century, et cetera, et cetera, like all of those kind of noble sounding goals. And of course, we know that the U.S. at the time that the Taliban were in power really didn't have a problem. I mean, there was some demonization of the Taliban of course, but mostly the Americans were like, yeah, it's the government in Afghanistan. The government is geostrategically located in an important part of the world, a resource-rich part of the world. We're going to do business with it. We're going to help and facilitate building pipelines. So, you know, it was kind of all right with whatever the Taliban did. But for the people inside of Afghanistan who had, you know, been on a socialist path in the late 1970s and the 1980s, The victory of the successive governments after the fall of the socialist government, it was a real tragedy and a real catastrophe for the rights of workers, for the rights of poor peasants, and especially for the rights of girls and women. You mentioned that the Taliban today may not be the same as the Taliban who were running the place in 2001. I'm looking at the front page of the New York Times today. April 15, 2021, very you know, historic-looking front page from one side of the paper to the other, big banner headline, quote, it is time to end the forever war. That's Joe Biden's quote. Underneath the picture of Joe Biden strolling through Arlington Cemetery, again, where 
he's obviously having to pay homage to the thousands of American soldiers who died in Afghanistan in a war that the Americans were eventually defeated in. The article reads, after two decades of turmoil, Afghans face still more uncertainty. And I'm going to read a couple of sentences to you, Sarab, and get your reaction. Kabul, Afghanistan is the byline. A female high school student in Kabul, Afghanistan's war-scarred capital is worried that she won't be allowed to graduate. A pomegranate farmer in Kandahar wonders if his orchards will ever be clear of Taliban landmines. A government soldier fears he will never stop fighting. Three Afghans from disparate walks of life now each asking the same question, what will happen to me when the Americans leave? Well, if you're an Afghan living in Afghanistan, that's the most important question of all, isn't it? I mean, the Afghan people are undoubtedly aware of geostrategic and geopolitical calculations, but it's their life, it's their country, it's their homes. Let's just talk about what you expect or anticipate during the period or after the period of transition. Yeah, I think that's a really important point you've raised because, of course, within popular imaginings of Afghanistan, within popular discourse uh, on Afghanistan, oftentimes it's the voices of Afghans that is completely absent from these discourses and how we think about the country. In other words, we've sort of fallen into this trap of thinking ourselves in terms of you know, the so-called great game, that Afghanistan is only important or significant insofar as it's a battleground or a stage for these supposed great powers to play out their geopolitical jockey. I think that, again, this is important to emphasize and stress because it reveals a lot about what is internally happening in Afghanistan and therefore helps us to think a little bit more seriously about what this delay in troop withdrawal means that Joe Biden just announced. One of the sort of senses that I gather from contacts that I have in Afghanistan, from friends and family that I speak to there, but then also seeing online one of the amazing developments in news coverage in media in Afghanistan itself is that you see more and more frequently programs where reporters are going out on the street and talking to ordinary Afghans, working Afghans, asking them about their daily issues. And, you know, from the conversations that I've had, but also from seeing these reports, the vast sense that you get from people interviewed is that there's a great deal of wanting an end to, as you said, this worry about what will come. There is this overwhelming sense that peace is what the people want more than anything. And therefore, the end and cessation of armed conflict is something that the people are very much yearning for. At the same time, it's important to remember that there are still populations in Afghanistan that have good reason to be concerned about what a transition towards peace looks like. You mentioned a young woman who was concerned about her ability to complete her education in Kabul. That is a very legitimate and real concern that unfortunately I don't know how that will play out. I think that there is a good chance that once again, whatever modicum of progress has been achieved, and it's been very small, I would say, through these last 20 years of U.S. invasion and intervention in Afghanistan, 
that whatever modicum of progress has been achieved during this time for women does stand a real chance of being undone. But then again, at the same time, I don't think that any viable transition in the country can come about unless the Taliban makes certain changes, especially with respect to social control and access for women to certain things that in the past they would have prohibited. I think that it's also worth saying that when we look back to this 20-year period, now almost 20-year period of U.S. military humanitarian intervention in Afghanistan, that though there has been some progress achieved for women, it's been largely superficial. That, you know, even now under this national government that is really sort of a puppet regime of the United States, there are still, I saw recently outside of the western city of Herat, there was a woman who was whipped the tribal leaders for some offense. Right now, violence against women, the oppression of women is taking place under the national government and not even yet under a government in which the Taliban would have a great deal of influence. So I think we have to remember that there are a lot of challenges for the Afghan people to figure out, but these challenges are often exacerbated or made worse in the context of U.S. military occupation in the country. Indeed. And I think this goes back to the dilemma. The U.S. as an imperialist power, again, always camouflages its nefarious interventions everywhere with a noble cause. It's not like, you know, it was 100 years ago, like 1915, Woodrow Wilson could send the Marines into Port-au-Prince and to Haiti, march into the capital, go to the main bank, take all the gold and all the money out of the bank, take it back to the port, get on a ship take it to New York City and put it in Citibank. They took all of Haiti's money and they didn't have to say, oh, it's because we wanted to help Haitians do this or that. They just did it because they could do it. And Haiti was going through a period of political instability. And so the U.S. just fortified its own interest through this imperialist intervention. Nowadays, you have to dress it up. Like because of modern sensibilities, you have to give it a noble cause. So, well taken that America really isn't intervening in Afghanistan because they care about girls, but the government that the U.S. helped overthrow, the socialist government that we talked about last week, it did care about the rights of girls. It did care about the rights of women. It did care about the rights of workers and the rights of poor peasants. And so, the U.S. government not caring at all about those same constituencies that it says it cares so much about now as a rationale for its own intervention, the U.S. government was the enemy of women and the enemy of girls. And then when you think about dropping bombs and, of course, drone strikes in Afghanistan, there are more drone strikes by America in Afghanistan than any other country in the world. So, like, when you're party is being bombed, when your school is being bombed, when you're afraid to go outside, whether you're a man or a woman, whether you're a child or an adult, whether you're you know, a grandchild or a grandparent, you can't conflate the drone with freedom because the drone is the opposite of freedom. That's what makes this issue important to talk about, but also complicated to talk about because the imperialist war is never going to really liberate women and girls. No, and I'll give you a concrete example that speaks to the point that you raised. During the time of the socialist governments, you had real material support. And by material support, I mean systematic 
efforts by the government to empower women through access to healthcare, through access to education, through these widespread literacy campaigns, which were, were specifically targeted towards women because, of course, in rural areas, women were the last to be educated. That whereas you see that during the time of the socialist government and you compare it to efforts in the last 20 years, especially in the years following the U.S. invasion of Afghanistan in 2001, you see a complete change in what support for women's emancipation looks like. After the U.S. invasion of Afghanistan, there's actually a very good documentary. I don't know exactly when it was released, but it was in the early 2000s or in the 2000s for sure, called Kabul Transit, where they actually highlight, they speak with a number of women in Kabul, asking them about recent changes enacted under the national government of Afghanistan after the U.S. invasion. Changes that were done for women during this period were, for instance, providing cell phones for women. Or one of the common stories you hear, you know, emerge from this sort of U.S. military humanitarian context in Kabul is that they created beauty schools for women. Now, these changes, I suppose, under the right government within the right program, aren't inherently bad things. But what they convey is a complete lack of awareness, a complete lack of knowledge of the context or of the nature of the issue for women. In the documentary I mentioned, one of the women interviewed points out the absurdity of a campaign, of a massive campaign to provide women with cell phones when they don't have, when they don't have access to basic healthcare, when women are dying when giving birth to children in rural areas, that when they don't have these basic needs met, the U.S. and all of these various nonprofits that have entered Kabul that are then championing cell phone use or the prevalence of certain beauty schools in Kabul is really just absurd. And so I think that, it, again, it is, as you said, so important to reflect back on the recent history of Afghanistan, in particular under the People's Democratic Party of Afghanistan, to really see how, how absurd current realities in Kabul are, and therefore how that absurdity is directly related to U.S. imperialism in the country. Let's talk a little bit more about the shift or the change as you perceive it. And of course, you won't know with absolute certainty what the outcome will be, but the change within the Taliban. The the original leadership of the Taliban is gone. I mean, Omar Mullah is no longer alive. There's been a second and a third tier of leadership. I interviewed the journalist Ahmed Rashid about his book, Taliban, Militant Islam, Oil, and Fundamentalism in Central Asia, which is for people who want to know more about Afghanistan, I would I don't know how you feel about the book, but I thought it was extremely helpful and informative. And he spent time with the Taliban. He actually went, maybe it was in the 90s that he was actually living with them. But let's just track who the Taliban are, because there was the Mujahideen, and again, as a matter of fact, I'm going to ask to play an audio clip of Dan Rather. We did it last week, but I want to play it again because the U.S. was supporting what were called the Mujahideen. And the Mujahideen, you know, that's a controversial term. It's obviously means different things to different people. It certainly means only negative things now in terms of how the U.S. presents it. But at the time, the U.S. was supporting the so-called Mujahideen in their armed uprising against the socialist government. And 
when the Soviets left and the socialist government negotiated an end to its own unilateral or unipolar authority within Afghanistan, other governments came in and the country also started to fragment. And of course, there were regional military powers. There was the Northern Alliance in the North. The Taliban was an extreme form of fundamentalism. And then when it came into power, exercised this extreme fundamentalism. But but it was also perceived, and I talked to Rashid about this, was also perceived to be less corrupt than some of the other described in American or Western media as the warlord factions. Let's talk about the evolution of the Taliban then, and then your perceptions of what the Taliban might be like now on some of these, let's say in particular on some of the social or class issues. So Rob, so I want to get your comments on that. But first, again, for our audience that may not have heard the first episode of our conversation with you, I want to play this clip. It's CBS News, 1980. Dan Rather, the most important news reporter in America at that time, took the place of Walter Cronkite. Here's how he described the group led by Osama bin Laden, or certainly Osama bin Laden was a fundraiser and a spokesperson for the group. Let's listen. We were smuggled into Afghanistan by a young Mujahideen. Mujahideen, the Muslim word for freedom fighter or fighter in a holy war. In this case, as the Mujahideen see it, a holy war against the Soviets. A war, they say, that if they get weapons from us or anyone else in the free world, they will win. Well, okay, as we've talked about, that was Dan Rather talking about how the U.S. and the CIA and CBS and all the American media were working at that time with Osama bin Laden and the so-called Mujahideen against the socialist government. But let's go back. Let's put this into perspective. How did the Taliban emerge from that milieu after the collapse of or the end of the socialist government? Sure. I've always found the term Mujahideen somewhat of a clumsy one. And, you know, firstly, if I can slightly correct Dan Rather, um, he mentions Mujahideen means freedom fighter. It's actually the plural of Mujahid, Mujahid meaning in Arabic, someone who carries out jihad, in this case, sort of an armed struggle, jihad meaning armed struggle against the Soviet forces in Afghanistan. But aside from that, I think that Mujahideen is sort of a clumsy term because it doesn't really speak to, as you said, the multifaceted and the number of different groups that were fighting against the national government of Afghanistan at the time and Soviet forces. The origins, of course, as we referenced last week, the origins of the Mujahideen actually predate the Soviet intervention in Afghanistan, that there are Afghan scholars who have done some research and have argued that the presence of armed fighters against the then government of Dawood Khan were in Pakistan prior to even the Sour Revolution that brought the socialist government to power. Along the same lines, the Taliban emerges also, I think it's hard not to contextualize the emergence of the Taliban within a long sort of history of far-right Islamic fundamentalist sort of organizing and movement in Afghanistan uh, that goes back to even sort of the founding of again, in the late 1960s and 1970s, of a wing of the Islamic Brothers, the Islamic Brotherhood, which, of course, 
originates in Egypt, but you see sort of a, an emergence of a similar parallel Islamic Brothers movement in Afghanistan. And, and so there is a sort of a longer history that needs to be explored, really, of these sort of Islamic fundamentalist groups emerging in Afghanistan. So it's hard not to contextualize the emergence of the Taliban within that. The Taliban themselves also, Talib means student. It's also a singular term, Talib, meaning one person who is this sort of religious student, Taliban, meaning plural. That's another term that is sort of clumsily used, especially in popular discourse in the United States. The Taliban, as you said, when they came to Kabul and when the Taliban government emerged in Kabul, there was a real belief among the people, at least in Kabul, that there is, for all of the religious fundamentalism, for all of the very strict adherence to Islamic practice and the repression against those who did not strictly adhere to Islamic practice, in other words, if you did not have a beard, if, you not, if women were seen to be uncovered or out in public spaces, that for all of that, there was a certain degree of security and stability. I think you're right to point that out. The Taliban, for instance, as much as we associate Taliban now with you know, certain aspects of the drug trade, there was a strict prohibition on drug use in Kabul at the time, which I think some attribute also to certain levels of security in the capital. I think that it is true. There is a sort of mixed sort of review among the people of Afghanistan reflecting back on that period. But that's certainly not to say that the people of Afghanistan see a transition to a Taliban government again as something positive. I think that in terms of changes within the Taliban from the time in which in the late 1990s they came to Kabul, I think some of those changes are Again, important to highlight, for instance, in terms of how they see the necessity of changing their own attitudes towards social control and what they would like to see instituted in Afghanistan to make it a more, let's say, Islamic state. I think that there is a lot to be looked at and examined with respect to how we won't necessarily see the same sort of realities that we saw in the past take place in Afghanistan going forward, if the Taliban are to take more of a position of power in the government. I have just two more questions, Sarab. And the first is, if there is a government of national unity, or if there's a government that's dominated by the Taliban or both, again, we've talked about that long border between Afghanistan and Iran. What do you think the Iranian government's attitude would be towards this kind of government? And what do you expect in terms of Afghan-Iranian relations? Answer that, and then I have one final question for you. Well, I think that Iranian interests in Afghanistan are in favor of peace. And if that means peace with Taliban with a great deal of influence in a future national unity government, I don't think that that would be something opposed by Iran. That being said, there are important sources of conflict between Iran and Afghanistan that shouldn't be left unrecognized or unacknowledged. For one thing, the Helmand River, which is in the southwest region of Afghanistan, which flows into Iran, is sort of a constant source of conflict and tension between the two countries in terms of how much water or the degree of benefit from this river that either country maintains. So as of right now, Iran relies a great deal on the outflow of this river into their boundaries. And I think as Afghanistan wants to develop agriculturally in terms of energy, there are more efforts by the government in Afghanistan currently to 
dam up the river to restrict water flow down into the downstream neighbor being Iran. And I think that, you know, issues like this are going to be handled tactfully by uh, the government of Iran. And, and I think that by maintaining some sort of role in how peace is brought about in Afghanistan, that is something that Iran will take into consideration. So, Rob, I want to ask you a final question, and this does go back to the geostrategic calculations or machinations, however one might want to call them. Later today, Joe Biden is going to announce sweeping new sanctions against Russia. Russian officials, Russian diplomatic personnel are going to be expelled. That's what the media is telling us. We're recording this in the morning on April 15th, that later today, after we've finished our recording, these expulsions are going to take place and sweeping new sanctions. Now, with that said, I'm wondering if we have the Biden administration trying to end the war in Afghanistan and at the same time announcing and participating, even if indirectly, in talks with Iran over the re-entering by the United States of the JCPOA, the Iran nuclear arms deal, which Trump ripped up when he came into office, it appears to me that what the U.S. government, the strategic orientation or reorientation of U.S. imperialism is, both with the Iran nuclear deal and now with the presumed exit from Afghanistan, or we'll just give it the benefit of the doubt, that the U.S. is not becoming less warlike, it's not becoming more peaceful, But the U.S. is trying to pivot. The U.S. is trying to pivot out of these long wars in the Middle East or in the case of Afghanistan in Central Asia, wars that go on and on and on, like the Iraq war or like the Afghanistan war, and pivoting towards its new real military priority, which is major power conflict with China, but also with Russia. You have U.S. warships in the last days announce, well, at least the U.S. Navy is announcing they're entering the Black Sea, which is where Crimea is, where the Russians have their biggest naval base, again, on the border of Ukraine. The U.S. is denouncing the Soviet buildup near NATO, which, of course, would be inside of Russia. In other words, accusing Russia of building up its military forces inside of Russia at its own border at the time that the U.S., is moving warships into the Black Sea, and at a time when the U.S. has sent advanced weapons to the Ukraine government, and also where the Ukrainian government is meeting with NATO and making it clear that it's not a matter of if, but when Ukraine, the second largest, after Russia, the second largest republic in the former Soviet Union, would enter NATO, and thus NATO will be right at the edge, right at the border of Russia. So it seems that Biden is working within the geostrategic framework established by Barack Obama in 2011 when in Australia he announced the Asia pivot, which people at that time didn't know exactly what that means. But what it does mean is I think that the U.S. thinks let's not keep fighting these endless wars that we can't really succeed in that require money and troops. And let's orient towards the real issue, which is the rise of China or the China-Russia relationship in major power conflict. In other words, a pivot towards global war. What do you think? 
I think that's a very important point to raise. I would add to that that while the withdrawal, if there is a significant U.S. withdrawal of troops in Afghanistan, while that allows for a freeing up of sort of military capacity to pivot to other parts of the world, as you say, to the Black Sea and, and in a confrontation with Russia, and certainly an increased confrontation with China, I think that Afghanistan will still continue to play an important role in that case. I think that Afghanistan, again, as I've pointed out, Afghanistan not only holds a great deal of geostrategic importance for the United States, but also a country that has a great deal of resource wealth that would be beneficial to the United States. In other words, would enable the United States to maintain a certain hegemony in the world market that cannot be sacrificed. And so I think that as much as there are speculations and questions about the future of US-Afghanistan relations, I think that we can be certain that Afghanistan will continue to play an important part of this transition, shall we say, in US imperialism. Thank you very much. That was Sarab Eslami. He is a doctoral student at Syracuse University in the Department of Geography and the Environment. This was the second part of a two-part series on the U.S. war in Afghanistan, starting not 20 years ago, but starting more than 40 years ago with the CIA intervention against the socialist, progressive socialist government of Afghanistan in April 1978. For our listeners, if you enjoy the socialist program, and this is our real story segment, which happens every Thursday, if you enjoy the show, if you rely on it, if you value it, become a subscriber to it. We can be found at patreon.com forward slash the socialist program. Please subscribe to this show, to this kind of independent socialist programming so that we can continue this work. So, Rob Eslami, thank you very much for joining us. We'll continue to follow the struggle, the ongoing struggle. It's not over. The ongoing struggle in Afghanistan. You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We can only continue our work bringing you high-quality news, analysis, and history with the support of our listeners. Connect with us and become a patron at patreon.com slash the socialist program and receive an invitation to participate in an exclusive monthly seminar with Brian Becker. <laughs>